Fakalo Falahiatu. You're listening to Tangata Otemoana from RNZ Pacific. I'm Moira Tuila Epitela. Coming up first. The pledges are currently insufficient. The level of capitalization beyond this initial finance should move to the billion. Nations vulnerable to the climate crisis are sounding caution over the launch of the long awaited global fund. Also, it has huge impacts. Imagine if 20% of New Zealand's productive population went offshore. Some Pacific countries are questioning the benefits of the seasonal worker schemes in Australia and New Zealand. And later. I only have one question for you. Ready to have some fun? The first ever Samoan hero has been introduced to the gaming world. The former Prime Minister and now Opposition Leader of Tuvalu would scrap the Tuvalu-Australia Treaty if elected as Prime Minister at the upcoming election. Nelly Sobuanga told Lydia Lewis while Tuvalu shares a strong relationship with Australia, he believes that the treaty attacks the sovereignty of the Tuvalu people. Let me put it this way. Seriously, I haven't seen the uh, original copy of the uh, treaty, of the agreement. It was not circulated to the parliament of Tuvalu, nor to the people of Tuvalu. None of that happened. Uh, And therefore, the treaty was uh, done between the two prime ministers themselves in the Cook Islands. And that's the situation uh, right now. I moved a motion for the uh, to do the ratification to ratify the agreement first and then uh, allow the people to make a decision. All the people of Tuvalu, both in, Aust- in Tuvalu, in uh, New Zealand, Aotearoa, those in Fiji, Nauru, Kiribati, uh, the states, Australia, those, these Tuvaluans, the diaspora, must be given a chance to say something on this, uh, you know, agreement. But first of all, they have to understand what is there in order for them to decide for themselves. Uh, that's my, uh, my pr- proposal, my plan to Parliament. Uh, unfortunately, my motion was voted like uh, nine to five, nine uh, against from the government, and five of us are supporting my motion. So uh, as far as the Parliament of Tuvalu is concerned, that was the outcome. But there is a, a very, very amplified, loud opposition from the people of Tuvalu, in, in Tuvalu and outside of Tuvalu, uh, expressing concerns that these things that affect their, their sovereign rights, their sovereignty, their islands, beautiful islands, oceans and, and land and those things, are being uh, eroded and impeached on by some some sort of arrangements uh, that they never knew was being dropped on their on their laps. So that's the situation now. So have you requested to see the treaty? Will you be given this treaty to read, given that you are the opposition leader? I have requested, put a request on the floor of Parliament, and I have, in fact, uh, right in front of the, the Prime Minister, I said, the treaty, the version that I am look, uh, referring to now, uh, was the, the copy that I pulled out of 
the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade of uh, Australia in Canberra. Of course, they have this uh, online uh, library that we can tap into. But formally, from the government, from the government of Tuvalu, as a paper to Parliament, nothing has, has really come out. Nothing. So, which is really bad. The more important thing now is the, the voice of the people of Tuvalu. The voice, their rights. We need to hear what the people, especially the young guys, the poor and the youth, because they are the people who are going to inherit the sort of things that we leaders are doing right now. So the young people of Tuvalu, wherever they may be, in Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, uh, Nauru, Kiribati, they all have a right to, to know exactly what the hell is going on with regards to their uh, fundamental rights. Enele Sopuanga speaking with Lydia Lewis. The Papua New Guinea Minister of Bougainville Affairs, Manase Makimba, stressed in a parliamentary statement that the Bougainville referendum results are non-binding and it's for national parliament to determine the region's political status. In 2019, Bougainvillians voted resoundingly in a referendum for independence. The Bougainville minister heading the independence implementation mission, Ezekiel Masat, is disputing that the referendum was a non-binding exercise. He spoke with Don Wiseman. Very strong statements made this week in Parliament by the Minister for Bougainville Affairs, Manasa Makiba, and I think, to be fair, you're not happy with what he had to say. Uh, I think you're being polite by saying I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm, I'm very angry that this uh, narrative continues to be pushed down the road, a narrative where a constitutionally guaranteed referendum is now assumed that uh, doesn't have any uh, go forward, and I think it's the wrong narrative. For the life of me, I can't see how a constitutional guaranteed referendum would have no practical effect in the end. It's been called a non-binding referendum since before the referendum was held. But it's a phrase, or it's a term that's been around for a while. And you're suggesting it actually shouldn't be there. Yeah, well, I... Uh I never had anything to do with the activities prior to uh, the referendum being conducted. But I remember there are some commentaries even on the uh, referendum commission about this issue being non-binding. And I think that was wrong. And my views are still true to this day that there is nothing in any legislation nor the peace agreement that the referendum result would be non-binding. Now, I think it's important also, Don, to remember that when we negotiated the peace agreement, the various referendums that are conducted around the world were being looked at. And we were looking at uh, referendums like have effect, immediate effect. And you also have referendums that are delayed until certain other conditions are met. And as far as I remember, those were the sort of things we were looking at and trying to avoid a referendum where it would be effective upon the results being declared. Rather, it was decided that the two governments would work on consulting and making sure that the transition to independence would be as smooth as possible. And that's where the background is. And suddenly this non-binding issue comes in because the uh, referendum results are not effective on the date of the declaration 
declaration. It is therefore assumed that it is non-binding, and that's not correct. As, as far as you're concerned, the role of Parliament then is, because it was such an overwhelming vote for independence by Bougainvillians, 97.7%, your view is that when Parliament looks at it, it's a matter of them rubber-stamping it, independence being guaranteed from that point. I would avoid using the word rubber stamp. I I think Parliament plays a critical role, but given the peace agreement and given how the current legislation stands, yes, the matter goes before Parliament for endorsement. Now, I remind listeners, the greatest unknown in the peace agreement and the legislation was the referendum result, not the ratification. That's procedural. The greatest unknown, and I've, I've made these commentaries to uh, both the UN uh, agencies, and I've made that commentary to the signatories of the Bougainville Peace Agreement, that everybody's been sitting around waiting for this, acting like they're neutral until ratification. And it's not. That's wrong. They should come in now and play their part as soon as the referendum results came out. Now everybody's sitting around saying, oh, we'll wait for what comes out from ratification process. No, that's wrong. You should come in now because the referendum result is already being determined. All right. Now, uh, Father Dumarinu asked Parliament or raised the question of a political impasse between Bougainville and the Port Moresby government. The minister, Mr. Makiba, denied that there was any political impasse. What's your view? Is there one? We broke off talk. We broke off official talks a couple of months ago because we couldn't agree on the uh, contents of the uh, sessional order. Uh, now, as you remember, the, uh, the joint supervisory body had made some resolutions, and those resolutions were, amongst other things, that myself and Minister Makiba would work on the contents of the uh, sessional order. And in the event that we would not have any meetings of the mind, the matter would be then referred to a moderator. We broke off after we couldn't agree on the contents of the uh, sessional order, and the president has since written to the prime minister like months ago, I'm talking June, July, and the president has written to the prime minister seeking an urgent JSP to now determine the issue of the moderator. We have not received one response, not from the prime minister and not from the uh, minister. Now, having said that, uh, Don, that has not stopped my discussions with minister. I can say that we are on good talking terms. Despite the impasse, we continue to say on our part, on Bougainville's part, that we are going to leave this independent and therefore we shouldn't be affected or even if there's an impasse we always keep the doors open Some Pacific countries are questioning the benefits of the seasonal worker schemes in Australia and New Zealand. In the year to June 2023, 48,000 people left the island nations to participate in the schemes. But Pacific leaders in Samoa, Vanuatu and Fiji have expressed concern. Samoa's Prime Minister, Fiamena Omi Mata'afa, says countries such as hers shouldn't be seen merely as outposts which grow labourers for developed countries. Caleb Fothering has more. In January this year, Samoa's government passed its seasonal worker program, concerned by the loss of skilled labour, worker welfare and social problems associated with the schemes. Now the country is introducing a cap on the number of workers it sends to New Zealand and Australia. Samoa's Trade Commissioner, Va'atu Itu'i Apiti Meredith, says they have caused some negative economic impacts. 
before. It was only New Zealand that had caps per annum of the number of workers they can bring in to New Zealand. But now we are introducing a cap ourselves. Samoa's new policy, which is still being finalised, will prioritise those not in paid work. Those vulnerable communities are the ones that don't have the access to employment. They're basically like the unemployed or the unemployable. The number of Pacific Island seasonal workers coming to Aotearoa has doubled in the last decade and has jumped by almost a third in the last three years. Part of the new government's coalition agreement shows it will increase the cap, but by an unspecified amount. That's a call by the New Zealand government themselves in terms of their needs. Based on our needs, we need to cap so that we retain some of our own productive sector personnel back home. Senior Massey University lecturer Dr Api Morvenor told Nine to Noon remittances were hitting record highs in Fiji, but it has come at a social cost. He says villages are being emptied of workers. We are separating fathers from their children. In some instances, uh, children are left with their grandparents or other relatives to be able to allow for both parents to travel on these skills. Massey's co-director of Pacific Research, Professor Regina Scavens, also told Night to Noon about one-fifth of Vanuatu's and Samoa's productive male workforce has left for New Zealand or Australia. That means there's not maths teachers in some classrooms. That means there's mechanics missing from workshops, uh, bank tellers gone farmers, not there producing food. So it has huge impacts. Imagine if 20% of New Zealand's productive population went offshore. Dr Morvenor says it's the big country's responsibility to address the problems. They have the money, they have the expertise, and it is in their interest to invest in Pacific Islanders and to listen to what Pacific Island leaders are saying. Because what they're saying is there is a problem here. Meanwhile, two in-depth reports into Pacific Labour schemes says overall they have had a positive impact. The studies conducted by the World Bank and the Australian National University interviewed more than 2,000 workers from Kiribati, Tonga and Vanuatu. Tongan workers can earn about four times what they would back home, and the Vanuatu can earn up to ten times more. One of the co-authors, Zhang Dorn, recommends New Zealand should model Australia to allow Pacific workers to stay longer. The contract duration is one to four years, and our view is, given the large benefit of this scheme, especially in, in economic terms, something similar could be introduced in New Zealand context as well, because, as you know, the RSE is only for seasonal works, and the contract is less than a year. Ms Dawn says the schemes also improved worker relationships with their families, largely because it removed a lot of stress surrounding money. It'll be early next year before Marshall Islanders know the makeup of their new parliament following last month's election. But our correspondent in the Marshall Islands, Giff Johnson, told Don Wiseman that one thing is for certain there will be a significant lineup of new MPs. Not necessarily changes in the domestic results in many of the um, voting uh, islands, but certainly in some of the closer ones, the current domestic result can be totally upended by just a handful of votes from outside. And 
the way the system works here is that it requires that postal ballots can arrive up to 14 days after the election day. So the fact is they cannot be counted until after December 4, right? So all the domestic votes ballots have been counted as of last Friday. They're still inputting into their system. This is all manual. The One of the great features is nobody can hack this system because it's all manual. But it's just a matter of getting it, you know, all sorted. And, all, and you've got about 50 or 60 islands that people vote from. They vote absentee to other islands domestically. And then this is, it's just a complicated, tedious process. But long story short, based on the almost final, still unofficial domestic results, we're looking at probably a third of the parliament will change hands. And some unusual elements to all of this as well, because a number of senior members forced to retire because of ill health. Well, this is true. And we had six members step down and not run this year, which is unprecedented uh, in my experience here. Two of the Paramount chiefs who have been long-standing members of the parliament chose not to run, both for their own traditional chiefly duties as well as age uh, issues, I'm sure, come into play there. And then there's several cabinet-level ministers who were in such ill health that they weren't in parliament for a year or more. So they're out of the picture. So we were going to have six new seats out of the 33-seat chamber, no matter what. But it looks like another five or six will uh, also flip. And one thing that's interesting, this is how these small voting areas go. So as of yesterday, the vote for the Ebon Atoll Nidijela, or parliament member, between the long-term incumbent John Silk, who has been a foreign minister, fisheries minister, he's well-known in the region and internationally, John Silk running for re-election against challenger Marie Milne, who has been mayor for the last four years, making her first bid for the parliament. And the vote result, as of yesterday, is tied at 330 votes each. Now, of course, it's going to change with the postals, but it's just, you know, how these small constituencies can be. So there are votes like that and some others that are just a handful of votes separating candidates in the domestic vote. Yes, one of those, the Speaker, Kenneth Kitty, and yet he was the person or one of the people who was centrally involved in negotiating the compact. That doesn't seem to have done him a great deal of good as far as the election went. You know, people I've been talking to here who watch these things, and we've been talking about the fact that in 2015, as the climate cop, whatever that was in 2015, but as the climate uh, summit you know, got going, and Tony De Bruyne, well, he was a cabinet minister, long-term member of parliament, and he is credited with being a central figure in reaching the Paris Agreement, which, you know, remains the still the benchmark uh, in global climate negotiations. Well, he lost the election 
you know, right in the middle of being at the cop and, and doing these dramatic things to change the direction of the global negotiations. And I think what a lot of people see is just that, you know, he was so engaged in the international front, you know, he didn't attend as much to the local community. And local elections are just local elections. And so you never know how these things play out. And I've always felt here in the Marshall Islands that issues are really not the primary thing that get people elected. Like I hear people running on platforms of anti-corruption and so on and so forth. But quite frankly, I think it's much more about do people like you? Are you related to people? Do they see you? Do you come to funerals and weddings and birthdays? And, you know, are you an active member of the community? I mean, there just are so many things that go into how you get elected in a small community. And I think some of these bigger issues like the compact I mean, as odd as it may seem, it obviously didn't help in the case of the Speaker. All right. So we'll have a new government, definitely, at what point? So the new parliament will come in. They are obligated to meet on the first Monday of the year, I'm pretty sure. And the first Monday of the year, well, it's a holiday, so it'll be because that's January. It'll be January 1. So they will meet, I guess, the following week. So the the first working Monday, the parliament will convene in January to be sworn in and then to elect a speaker, vice speaker, and president. And then we'll know where we're going from there. The Pacific Games in Solomon Islands has now been officially announced as the largest ever in the history of the regional tournament. Over 5,000 athletes, officials and participants from 24 countries have been competing in 24 sports in and around the capital Honiara. The chief executive of the Games Organising Committee, Peter Stewart, commended the people of Solomon Islands for pulling off an extraordinary event that welcomed people from all over the Pacific. He spoke to Koroi Hawkins at the National Stadium in Honiara ahead of the opening ceremony. Now, look, I think we're very happy with the outcome. Uh, at the start of the Games, uh, always in a brand new city that hasn't run an event like this, we're always wary about what may or may not happen, but I think the team have rallied around beautifully, the people of Solomon Islands have rallied behind the event, and we have delivered a wonderful event. That's really the sense I've been getting from talking to the athletes and even, even locals um, about how ordinary Solomon Islanders have really embraced this, the volunteers, the people helping out, going out of their way to make the visitors feel welcome. How do you, I don't know, how do you get that kind of buy-in? Look, I think it's new for everybody, but the level of excitement was tremendous over the last couple of years as the venues have been built. People were driving past construction sites and then the the stadia started to peek its head over the construction fence. People started to get excited when the main stadium had the sails going on for the roof and then eventually the construction fences came down and people could look into the stadia as they drove past and that really got everybody's excitement going. So over the last couple of years it's been building, building, building and then of course all the teams arrive and you have athletes walking up and down the street with their accreditations on, teams in their uniforms coming so everyone's been incredibly excited by all of that. 
with any big event like this, obviously there will be challenges. What would have been the main ones uh, for this event? Well, I think probably the biggest challenge is that the resources here in Honiara, compared to a lot of the other bigger cities in the Pacific, are less. So we've had to do a lot of planning to make sure that our contractors and our suppliers had in what they needed to have in place, uh, which everybody has done. So we've got a a huge team, over 6,000 people, made up of staff, full-time staff working, uh, nearly 3,000 volunteers, community groups helping out, suppliers and contractors, the police, all of SIG, the Solomon Island government, all of the various departments, all pulling together to deliver this extraordinary event. I'm sadly, because of flights, not going to be here for the closing ceremony. Preview, sneak peek, what, what, what do we have coming for us? Uh, Well, uh, there's not a lot that I can tell you without shooting you afterwards, but uh, obviously the closing ceremony is a little bit different to the opening ceremony. The closing ceremony is very much a celebration of what's happened in the Games, and it gives an opportunity for the public to be able to recognise not only the athletes, but also the volunteers uh, and the workforce who have been delivering the Games, so they are all involved in some way. There are some cultural performances, and then of course there's a hand over to Tahiti who are hosting the next games so they have a little segment we will be awarding the male and female athlete of the games so uh, all of those are regular things that happen in the games and we will lower the flag the Pacific Games Council flag it will be handed over to Tahiti and, and all of the athletes and the people of the Pacific will be welcomed to join us all in four years time in Tahiti. Be honest, did you think it would be this much of a success? It's obviously, from everyone I've talked to, I've been really enjoying being at this thing. Well, you always hope that that's going to be the case, but you don't know what can befall. I mean, there are lots of variables, and, uh, you know, one is the weather. I mean, it has been unbelievably uh, kind to us, the the weather. Uh, Perhaps four or five days before the opening ceremony, we had a huge downpour here in Honiara, and we had some significant floods around some of our venues. Now, uh, if that had happened in the middle of the Games, we would have continued on, but it would have dampened the... uh, the feelings of spectators and athletes alike. But throughout the Games, we've had fantastic weather and it looks like it's going to hold, fingers crossed, all the way through to the closing ceremony. So those are the things that makes it easy for us to deliver a great Games when things like that work in our favour. Any statistics yet on attendance and um, participation in the Games? Yeah, well, this is the largest Games ever. We've had over 5,000 athletes. Samoa was the biggest Games before us, but it was announced the other day uh, that we have now got the largest Games, the largest Pacific Games that have ever been held. So that's a great accomplishment for, for us here in Solomon Islands to have been able to deliver that. Uh, so... From that point of view, amazing. Staggering stats abound in a games like this. So we, we deliver nearly 20,000 meals every day. We have 350 buses and trucks and cars running around on the roads every day. It's just a huge undertaking uh, that involves an enormous team to be able to deliver it. Looking to the future, being able to pull something off like this, what does this do for Solomon Islands in terms of a viable venue for future events? 
Well, the long-term benefits of these sorts of projects are we've built the capacity of the workforce, so there are people now who know how to do these sorts of events. We've built the capacity of businesses, so there's a whole range of businesses who are now able to cope with the demands of events such as this. We have incredible infrastructure improvements, so not only the stadia that was used for for the event, but also the roads, the airport... Even things that people don't see like... The internet's a lot better <laughs> than when I was last here. Exactly. All of those things have had to improve their standard of delivery to be able to meet the requirements of the game. So now what Solomon Islands is able to do is go out into the world and say, bring your events here, whether it be sporting events, whether it be religious events, whether it be business events. We've got the venues and the infrastructure to be able to support your event. Any message for the... People of Solomon Islands who might hear this before or during or after the closing ceremony in terms of what, what, what you've pulled off here? Well, I think it's just a fantastic thank you to everybody in Solomon Islands for the way that everybody has banded together to deliver a, a wonderful event that has welcomed the whole Pacific. first ever Samoan hero has been introduced to the gaming world. The Overwatch series is an online game with a daily average of close to 2 million players who get to select their characters from a roster of 39 heroes. Samoan character Monga is the latest addition. Blizzard is one of the biggest gaming companies in the world, producing iconic video games such as Warcraft, Starcraft and Diablo. Final Fonua spoke to Blizzard game developers about Monga and his Polynesian flair. Earlier this month, the highly anticipated Samoan warrior Maunga arrived to the world of Overwatch. Maunga, which means mountain in Samoan, is a fitting name for the large, chiseled and heavily tattooed character who wields chain guns in both hands. He is the largest of all the 39 heroes in Overwatch, offering a brute force experience. Narrative designer Kyung Soo Min says Manga is one of the biggest personalities in the game. Manga is our Samoan hero and he was part of like a eco-rebel warrior group. So he was fighting corporations and people who were just like disrespecting the nature and beauty of Polynesian islands. Yeah, he's super joyful and big guy, big voice. You know, he's the type of guy where we say like, He's the center of the party, but you don't want to cross him. You never want to be his enemy. I wasn't always the friendly, carefree guy you see before you today. (laughs) I used to take things very seriously. When it comes to video games, Pacific Islander characters are usually only found in the sporting simulations of American football and professional wrestling. Off a play action, tongue by lower. The 2002 family-friendly Lilo and Stitch video game was popular among children. It was set in Hawaii with Hawaiian characters and Hawaiian music. Listen, Lilo, I've got to go to work now, so I'll meet you in town at 1 o'clock, okay? Okay! Come on, Stitch. We can get some more photos for my walk. Pacific Islanders would occasionally appear as non-playable characters in blockbuster games. 
such as Samoan gang members in Grand Theft Auto V. Hey, you papa, get back here. You like hospitals, huh? You must like hospitals. Or the character Sinamoy, the leader of a group of survivors in the tropical zombie apocalypse of Dead Island 2. Name's John Sinamoy. I'm the head lifeguard here. We need to move everybody to the main lifeguard station. Overwatch art director Don Rogers says manga had been developed over five years. He said the Overwatch team was looking for a character who would fit the category of tank hero, a large Hulk with less speed but greater firing power. Rogers says when they design characters, they want a distinct look that fits the size and prowess of the particular character. We want to make characters that people either want to be directly related to some culture. We decided that、um, Samoa would be a great、uh, person to represent this kind of larger silhouette that we that kind of is required of the gameplay for a tank. And you know, we do a ton of research with Samoan, Polynesian. We narrowed down on what's the right. Manga's introduction to Overwatch coincided with BlizzCon, an annual convention hosted by Blizzard in Irvine, California, earlier this month. The event, which attracts thousands of gamers, promotes the latest Blizzard games. A special panel was held to discuss manga. Senior test analyst Foster Elmendorf told fans that manga's fighting prowess had to distinctly match his size and bigger-than-life persona. We kept coming back to manga's personality, and that he's this big guy. He's smart. He's very aggressive. How can we nail down this personality type? How do we make the hero he's supposed to be? We developed that mentality, but that physicality, and that was in tandem with. Ability design, and then also with art, where we looked at okay, how do we represent this giant of a man? And it came down to giant guns. Sizzling. One central figure in the development of manga was New Zealand Tongan actor John Dui, who voiced manga. Overwatch game developers praised Dui for bringing the character's personality to life. Narrative designer Kyungsu Min says John Tui's cheerful and boisterous voice embodied the character they were looking for. Our team was like going nuts. John Tui just delivered this beautiful performance. He's like this big voice, life of the party, just like a joyous guy. But he also has a dark edge. There are lines in the game where the delivery and the acting of it just like gave everyone chills. He really nailed the part. I work hard, and I play hard. So I only have one question for you: Ready to have some fun? It's Tangata Otemoana for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you are using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. I'm Wera Tuila Epitela. Kia monoina.